I'm going to ask you to follow along on whatever means you have. If you want to pull the Bible out that's in the uh, pew rack in front of you or watch a screen or, or if you have a smart something, you can use that as well. I'm going to read from John 17. I've listed the entire uh, chapter. Uh, we will refer and uh, walk through the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read the first 11 verses to you to give you the flavor of the prayer before I give an explanation. Again, John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you uh, gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. May God help us to understand this, his word. A little earlier in the service, Isaac was leading us uh, through a confession. And I have to admit that when I see the word leader, I think they're talking about me. And so I started with Isaac. There's just something about being up front that is your fame. It's sad that it's that way, but there seems to be uh, people recognize you. I was, I was uh, uh, a week ago uh, making a presentation of a paper that a number of us had uh, contributed, and, and I was walking through the halls of this uh, assembly, and people were, way to go, uh, glad uh, you did this work, and I didn't know them, but I loved the fame. I love the attention. I don't know anybody who may not want to be up front, but do want to be noticed, do want to be recognized and appreciated. You ever thought about that much? Why we want to be noticed? Why we want to be famous? Andy Warhol, who in 1968 is the one who coined the phrase, Everyone gets 15 minutes of fame. Now, if he was a, alive today and could spend uh, uh, some time on YouTube, 
or on Facebook or uh, Twitter or uh, Snapchat or Instagram, if you just could spend some time, you could see he would want to change what he said. Instead of everybody gets 15 minutes of fame, he probably would say everyone gets to be famous with 15 people. Because that kind of just seems to be our threshold. It used to be that everyone would know my name, kind of the cheers a slogan in the 80s to the 2000s are, I just need a few people who notice me out there in the internet world that want to keep up with my life. I think it's one of the reasons that reality TV has taken off so much. Matter of fact, it just seems like they've stopped making creative shows and have turned to reality TV. One reason is because it's so much cheaper to make reality TV because you don't have to pay real actors. You just get people like us and put us in a room and watch us come unglued. And people love that. People love to watch reality TV like people love to watch NASCAR. So there could be a wreck. (laughs) I know there are plenty of NASCAR friends. I hope you're not offended. It might be an insult to NASCAR to compare it to reality TV. It's just so great to watch somebody's life worse than yours. I think that's the main reason that it, that it takes off. And it creates so many people who are famous for 15 minutes. You ever wonder why we want that? Why people want to be known, to be noticed, to be recognized? I'm going to tell you something that might surprise you. The Bible recognizes that and doesn't say it's a bad thing. In fact, the Bible says that's the way you were made. You were made for glory. In fact, it says, Jesus, in this long prayer of 26 verses, most of it is about glory. The Father being glorified, the Son being glorified, and then he says, that they might be glorified. And the only reason he prays that way is because we were meant to have glory. Now, the problem is we've stretched a little bit the definition of what glory means. It literally means to matter, to have substance or weight or notice. And so when, when Jesus prays that we might receive that glory, what he's really praying for you and for me is that we will have meaning and purpose and weight and substance to us. I think that's pretty important. He says in verse 1, when, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about the cross. Glorify your Son, and that the Son may glorify you. And then toward the very end, in verse 22, he says, The glory that you had given me that I spoke about in verse 1, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. Often, Bible scholars call that the beatific vision. Not the beatific vision, but the beatific, this idea that God wants to communicate something to his people. God wants to give something to us. That's what, what's behind the word communicate. It's not simply words. It's more than it's words, but it's way more than words. God wants to communicate to us. 
He wants to give something to us. Because we see, we understand, we receive something. And in this case, it's glory. He wants us to have glory. Now, I want you to hold that for a second and think about final words. Because these are a lot of final words. Jesus is going to give an, uh, some more final words as we progress to the very end in a, in a few weeks. But these are a lot of final words. That is, it's a whole chapter of final words that are in a prayer. And though Jesus has not yet been betrayed, he's not yet been tried, he's not yet been convicted of anything, he's not yet been executed, he's been on death row the whole time. From the very beginning, even before he was born, Jesus has been on death row. People facing death tend to have important words. Mostly, not always, but mostly. The reason is, is that as we begin to face our death, if we're cosmic, if we can really have clear minds toward the end, we recognize that everything else about our lives are stripped away. You know, that the car needs to be fixed. I need to make sure the, the, the uh, a mortgage is paid. I need to make sure my life insurance are up. Those are important, but they're not ultimate things. Towards the end of our lives, if we're clear, ultimate things come to our minds. And we want to communicate ultimate things in the end. It's one of the reasons where people who are really on death row say, I'm sorry. All the guilt, all the things that they've been pushing away, all the denials, all the, the, the excuses, because it doesn't matter anymore. There, there's no one that's going to keep them from dying. So there's no sense in trying to, to mitigate what they have done. And so they say, I'm sorry. Or they have some words of final wisdom they want people to hear. What does uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Sidney uh, Carton, and John Coffey all have in common with Jesus? All right. Think for me. They all were considered innocent victims who were killed. They were all labeled traitors. They all were innocent when they died. You see, you think about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who, who was ultimately arrested uh, for plotting to kill the real traitor of Germany, Adolf Hitler. He spent time in prison simply because he sided with the victimized Jews rather than the victimizers. And so it was in prison uh, that they decided to execute him. And on toward the very end of his life, the final words that we know that, that uh, are recorded uh, for us of Diedrich Bonhoeffer as he faced his death, as he spoke to encourage the others that were being executed with him, were these words. This is the end, but it is the beginning for me. If you don't know who Sidney Carton was, he is the hero of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And he goes to the uh, guillotine, uh, standing in the place of a friend who was accused wrongly for treason during the French Revolution. And it's there he gives the, the, the famous 
words that encourage the woman he loves where he says, that's a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done before. And I go to a far, far better rest than I have ever known. Great quote. But if that's all you got, you missed it. At the very end, there's this girl going to the guillotine with him. And she needs to be cursed because she's scared to death. And he turns and he says, and he quotes John. And he, he quotes that passage where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he will live again. And if he believes in me and lives, he will never die. And then he dies. Or how about John Coffey, the Green Mile? What a great picture, Christ figure, big, huge hero who is accused of killing two little uh, uh, white girls and he's on uh, death row for it, totally innocent. And you don't know throughout the entire movie what he has done wrong, but he keeps repeating, I, I can't take it back. And then you find out what he's talking about is, is that he's a, he's a pain reliever. He's a person who reaches into your deepest, darkest secrets of pain and he's able to pull it out of you and take it away. See, beautiful picture of Christ. But what's amazing is, is that he's walking that long green mile uh, to the electric chair where his guards know he's innocent. He says this, it's okay. It's okay. They want to they make him escape. They want him out of the electric chair. He said, it's okay. Because when I die, I'm going to heaven where I will play with those two little girls. Now you get the picture of Jesus. He's going to his death. And he's saying it's okay. He's okay. Because of where he's going after he dies. He's going to pray here for three things really quickly. He's going to, he's going to pray for himself. And it's a bittersweet prayer. He prays, he prays bitterly about the cross, but sweetly about going to heaven. And then he turns and he says, but I'm going I'm to leave my people behind. I'm going I'm to leave the people I love, my disciples. I love them to death. Keep them safe. But keep them engaged in the mission. There's going to be a great temptation to leave the mission because of, it's going to get hard. Because if they persecute me, they're going to persecute them. I kept them. I didn't lose a one of them, Lord. You keep them. But keep them in the world. And then he's going to pray for you across the centuries. He's going to pray something for you. That of all the things he could be praying for us through all the centuries is that we are one. That, that above all else, that we are one. So let's look at that real quickly. And the very first thing, he prays for himself, bittersweet. Because in, in, in verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. His entire life is lived in light of his father's glory, his father's weight, his father's matter, his father's plan. But what's occupying his thoughts now? Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about his death. The cross, he's always referring to the cross, his death, as the hour. And now it's come. And now he says, glorify me on during that hour. That the Son may glorify you. That your plan 
to save the world might happen. Can you imagine up to this moment? We're sure it's going to happen because God is sovereign. But at this moment, there's still a lot to go through before that plan is executed, before that plan is realized. And Jesus is saying, that's where I'll be most glorified because you will be most glorified because your fame, your plan will be realized. Why would the cross be on Jesus' mind? Why? Of all the things to have on his mind, he's going to pray for his disciples. He's going to leave. He's going to pray for the church that's going to follow him for the generations. Why, why the cross? Why now? Why this bitter thought? Because in a few hours, Jesus is going to be profoundly abandoned and alone. We forget that because we look at the cross as merely an exchange My sin for his life. But we forget in order for there to be an exchange, the father has to abandon his son. Jesus is not tormented. There's not a bitterness because of the nails, the pain of the nails that are in his hands, that are in his feet. That will be grotesque and hard. He's going to get whippings from here. He's going to have a crown of thorns. He's going to be dragged through the streets. Those are going to be horrible things for him. But he is not bitter over that. He's bitter over the idea that at a moment that he takes our sins, his father will no longer have a relationship with him. And that thought is causing his heart to be ripped in two because he has never known a moment where he was not one with his father. The closest you and I will ever get to that experience for those who are married is with your spouse. To lose your spouse only gives you a faint picture of the ripping of the father from the son because of our sin. It's not like the son did anything wrong. He was innocent. And because he took our sins, the father is so holy, he could not look upon his son. He could not continue the relationship at that moment. He had to abandon his son to where his son would shout, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that is what awaits everyone who does not trust in Jesus Christ. That is not to wish on your worst enemy. To wish that they would be abandoned by God. But that is what awaits everyone who does not know Jesus and trust in what he did on the cross for them. And that's why it is so bitter. It's so bitter for him. It is literally tearing his mind apart as we know in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, if there's any other way, if there's anything that I could do other than this. He's not talking about all the physical suffering he's going to go through. Because it, it is so in comparison small to the abandonment that he will feel of the aloneness as he dies without his father. But, and here's the good news, because it's bittersweet. It's not just bitter. It's also sweet. He goes on in verse 5 and says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's not 
he's now saying something very profound. He, he's saying, yes, this is, this is terrible. This is hard. This is bitter. I, I'm willing to go through this for my people. But this isn't the end. It, it, it's, it's the John Coffee. Yes, I'm going to lecture. It's going to be horrible. But on the other side, where there's going to be no pain and no need for me to take anyone's pain away because there'll be no more pain. I will play with those two girls and they will be put back together. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm going to die in the darkest of sin, but I'm going to awake in the light of healing. Though he is leaving those he loves, he is going home. He's going home to the one he loved first and most. Jesus mattered before the incarnation, but he's talking about mattering after the incarnation, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. He's saying clearly, yes, I had great glory. I set it aside. That's what Philippians 2 says in verse 7. I set it aside. I emptied myself of my glory to become with you one of the creatures, to even allow my creatures to nail me to the planet. But when that's all done, when it's all accomplished... I'm going to get my glory back. In fact, our passage implies that his glory after the resurrection is greater than the glory before his incarnation. How so? How is that even possible? It's not about adding glory now. That's how we miss it. God the Father is not adding glory. He's just making it more beautiful. How so? When you think of Jesus, what do you think of? Do you, do you think of the perfect body, the perfect, the, no scars, no picture? The scriptures teach us that Jesus will be in heaven with us with his scars. That's how he for all eternity will be te- testifying to what he has done for us. And his glory will be greater because we'll see it more beautifully. His glory will be, be beautified by his scars. And so that bittersweet prayer now turns towards those that he's going to leave behind. He loves those disciples. In fact, he says, I haven't lost a one. You see that? Keep them, verse 11. In verse 12, I have guarded them and not one has been lost. Verse 15, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. That's the balance, isn't it? You and I are not called out of the world. We're called into the world, yet in the world is evil. What do you do about that? I tell you, Christians have typically done one or two things with the evil that's in the world. I'm not debating how evil the world is. I'm just laying out an argument that there's a third option. If there are two typical responses that Christians have had toward evil in the world, there's another way to go. One option, and, it, and it's what the disciples do first. After Jesus' crucifixion, where do they go? They run and hide. There's a temptation that we're going to, as Christians, to isolate ourselves, withdraw from the world. It's been part of the Christian experience from the very beginning. I told you the disciples did it. When Jesus finds them, where have they gone? To the mission field? No. Back to fishing. They went hide in the upper room, and then they went fishing. 
Christian hermits of the third century did what? They went out to the deserts thinking they could get away from evil. During the Middle Ages, we had monasteries. We had the monastic movement where people thought that they could withdraw from the world by giving isolation. Where in some places they didn't even talk to each other. And in some monasteries, you didn't see another human being. You stayed in your room. In the 20th century, 21st century, we created communes. Places that Christians could go and join and live a life separate from the world. If we're not careful, we can do this without ever leaving our communities, our culture. What do I mean? Our lives as Christians can easily be filled up with so many good, wonderful things that have unintended, horrible consequences. This is what I mean. Many of you are in Bible studies. Great things. This is not an advertisement. Don't get in a Bible study. A lot of you will stay after church after this service and go to a Sunday school. Great. I'm glad you're here. A number of you will read Christian books. We'll try to watch all the Christian movies that come out. You will also educate your children in Christian schools or do it yourself at home. You'll listen to Christian radio. If there was Christian TV, you would be on it. Those are great things, but there's an unintended consequence. The unintended consequence is this. Isolation. No relationship with people who are not in the community. We, we often create this special Christian language that you all have to go to a foreign language before you understand what Christians are talking about. It is now possible to go from womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed cul-de-sac of life with some fish stickers. It is possible to abandon our culture without ever leaving it today. Have you functionally removed yourself from the world in which God sent you into? And Christ prays that you will not, even though it is possible. The other extreme, just as dangerous, is not to avoid the world, but to conform to the world. I do not ask you, this is verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm not, God doesn't call you out of the world. But you're no longer part of it. You no longer, you're no longer part of its world system, the way in which it thinks and operates, the tools in which it uses. You have a whole different set of lifestyle and values and identity. To conform to this world makes us Christians indistinguishable from the world around us. And therefore, conformity impedes the mission itself. It's understandable, but it is wrong. And if we're not careful, we can obscure the glory of Jesus. We can't destroy it. We can't take one iota from it. But we sure can diminish it by, by hiding it, by saying that the gospel didn't change me. 
That's the hardest thing, isn't it, Christians, to say how the gospel changes us to where we are not like the world. This is why Jesus prays so much that, that, that we wouldn't give it in to the two extremes of isolation and conformity. Instead, just as, I, just as the Father had sent me into the world, as verse 18, so I have sent them into the world. You and I have been set apart for his glory, but not apart from the world. That is, you and I are not going to get on a spaceship and go to a Christian planet to live, nor any subset here on this one. Then he prays lastly for the church. He really begins to think about you. After he's prayed for the disciples that are with him and the horrible things that they're going to experience not only in it, at the time of his death, but also after he's gone, he begins to think about you. He begins to think about you. What does he pray for us? Verse 21, that we would be one. I want you to notice that this unity is not a unity that you and I can create. We can't decide that we're going to be unified. That didn't work that way. Not this kind of unity because it's supernatural. It's not natural. You see how he describes it in 21? That they may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's not something that the Father and Son can physically do. That's who they are. It's not what they do. Verse 21 goes on that they may be one even as we are one. He's saying just as the Father and the Son are one, we are to be one with them. He said that back in 15. If my words abide in you and I, my words abide in you and I, and you in me, then you can bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. We should share this divine nature together. And that creates a unity, not a uniformity. I think that's a mistake we make. That unity means that we all look alike, sound alike, act alike, see the world alike, live alike. You know what that does? It strips beauty from God. God's more beautiful than that. He's so beautiful that he can have African-American Christians. He can have Asian Christians. He can have, he can have a, a, a white Caucasian Christians. He can have wealthy Christians, poor Christians. He can have middle-class Christians all in the same. That's what's so beautiful about the church. It doesn't matter what race or ethnicity. He doesn't wipe them out and say, cease to be that. Now you're something else. This is that my, my church, my people are all of that. I call people from every tribe, people in tongue. When we get to heaven, check out Revelation. Not only is there more people than the sand on the seashore and, and stars in the heavens, but they're going to be from every tribe and every people and every ethnic group. That's what he wants us to be, one, a kind of unity that results as a result of each of us drawing closer to Jesus. That is, if you shoot for drawing closer to each other, you don't get Jesus. But if you shoot to draw closer to Jesus, then we all get closer as a byproduct. It's all about your goal. It's all about your aim. If you're shooting your target at each other, that's you trying to create unity. And that will only hold until your friend disrespects you, dishonors you, hurts you. And then it all comes apart because you've got no means to bring each other back together other than redouble your efforts. But imagine 
if Jesus is the object of our unity, if Jesus is the goal for our unity, then when we do hurt each other, we've got a means for reunity. It's called repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. That comes from Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. The world will understand the glory of Jesus when the glory of Jesus is seen in the church. Think about that. The world will see the glory of God when you and I show the glory of God in our unity. Because our unity is a testimony that it worked. That what Jesus did on the cross changed us. At a communal level, to where we love little Bruce, we care for him, we raise him with his parents, and then we pray that God, through his spirit, will bring faith to that child. You see... Then also individually, when you talk about two people who aren't getting along, you have every right to demand as a Christian where two other Christians aren't getting along. You must get along, not because of the command, be one, but simply because they are one. It is who they are in Christ. Anybody who says, I can write someone off, doesn't understand this prayer. You cannot write another Christian off no matter what they have done. Because you are one forever. We just need to figure out what that looks like here with all of the messiness and brokenness of our world. Don't you see, when he prayed, he wasn't just praying some little prayer about how hard things are going to be for us when he's gone. He's given a grand, beautiful theology of what the church means with him as our goal and the means to accomplish that goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the men and women and children in this room who know you and love you and so much want to demonstrate this unity together. But I pray also, Father, for those in the room who don't know you, that this is, they didn't know Christianity was about this idea of unity, an abandonment of a father of a son to save a people. And so I pray that this is a beginning of a conversation, that by your spirit you, you awaken their hearts to see and to understand. I pray that for all of us who are followers of yours, especially the preacher, that we can't afford one person to be out of sorts with another without bringing and demanding resolution. Not because, not because you demand it, but because we are one. To bring into conformity our lives with who we really are. So that your glory is in us as it already is in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to respond together by singing Facing a Task Unfinished.